Hello, and welcome to this week's Thursday Top 5. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. This week, we came across something so cute called I Miss My Bar, which is an audio project that lets you recreate the ambiance of your favorite bar at home. Yeah, so basically the project has seven different audio channels that play sound effects ranging from a bartender shaking cocktails to the hum of a room full of drinkers. And um, the website also provides a music playlist to enhance the ambience of your apartment or house or wherever you are. And the initiative is actually Mexican and belongs to the cocktail bar Maverick in San Pedro Garza Garcia, which is in Monterrey. I think this is such a cool idea. Whenever we have people over now, we're trying to like play music and do all these things because there's nothing worse than just like silence. Yes. And we haven't played around with the audio project yet, but we definitely will be checking it out this weekend. Yes. And we will report back. But we have two exciting updates this week. First up, as reported by Artnet, quote, Former tape boss Nick Sirota says that the Louvre's renovation of a gallery featuring a site-specific work by Cy Twombly is an affront. So for those who don't remember, on last week's Thursday Top 5, we discussed a headline suggesting that as a result of renovations at the Louvre, the artist's foundation was threatening to sue the museum for redecorating the space and thus disturbing the environment in which Twombly's work was meant to be viewed. Yes, but the museum has actually made a statement saying that they made it explicitly clear to Twomley that the museum is a moving body and that museography could change. So Twomley's team is refuting these claims and calling for their room to return to how it was before. We will definitely keep on following this story, but it's so interesting to see staff from other museums siding with the artist. I think it really is going to come down to proving whether or not Twomley's team did sign documents acknowledging that the space could change potentially in the future. Yeah, because if that was the case, then there's like nothing they can do and they'll just have to accept it. And like we talked about last week, the work itself is fine. Yeah, the work was not damaged. It's just the ambience that changed. So it's an interesting case. Very Mm -hmm. unique. Next up, we have an update from a story that began all the way back in November of 2020 when we discussed the mysterious monoliths that were popping up in the middle of the desert overnight. According to Artnet, quote, mysterious monoliths keep appearing all around the world with 200 reported sightings to date. So the article refers to the trend as monolith mania and recent examples in Turkey and the Democratic Republic of Congo have appeared and disappeared just like their predecessors. Yeah, and most copycats have materialized in outdoor locations, but one did pop up in South in a South African grocery store, which is perhaps the most interesting location of them all. Imagine if one like popped up at Fairway. <laughs> That'd be so funny. <laughs> but all of the sightings have now been documented by the Monolith Tracker, which has put together a timeline of appearances and disappearances worldwide, as well as details about each specimen and any known information information about their origin and we will include a link if anyone is interested and wants to check out the whole thing in greater detail but there is no end in sight so who knows when the next one will bub up and maybe it will be here in new york city and we'll go see it let's hope our first headline of the day comes to us from art news where it was reported that quote edward monk authored mysterious writing on the screen new analysis reveals So to give some background information, in 1904, a Danish critic took a close look at Edward Munch's The Scream and noticed something very startling, faint handwriting in the far corner of the canvas that reads, quote, 
can only have been painted by a madman. Since then, the origins of the inscription have baffled curators, some of whom assumed it was graffiti by a spectator or a jab at the famously anguished artist. Yes, so Norway's National Museum, which is slated to open in Oslo in 2022, teamed up with the Monk Museum to utilize infrared technology to analyze the handwriting. And after comparisons with Monk's diaries and letters, researchers have determined that he was indeed the author of the short text. It was suggested that he most likely wrote the phrase in 1895 or shortly after that in response to particularly cutting criticism received after exhibiting the scream for the first time. So interesting. And after this exhibition, viewers openly speculated that the screaming figure at the center was the artist himself, and some went so far as to suggest it was evidence that the artist was not so sound of mind. Um, Their response had a strong impact on the artist, and he returned to the incident again and again in his letters and diaries. So it clearly just, like, marked him forever. Right, it really had an impact. Yes. And throughout his career, he dealt with depression, loss, anxiety, all in his paintings. Mm -hmm. Both his father and sister actually suffered bouts of depression, and Mm -hmm. his sister was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So these were very personal feelings, which I'm sure made even more of an impact when he received the criticism. It's so interesting to see how these artists like during that period of time also like Van Gogh had mental issues and because I mean it's like stigmatized still now but even like back then it was just so much worse right that it is so interesting to see how they dealt with them but yes between 1893 and 1910 Monk made four versions of the scene two paintings and two pastels as well as a number of prints of the same subject but the version owned by the National Museum is the only one with this inscription and I think that's why there were so many questions about who actually made the inscription because Mm -hmm. like why wouldn't he have done it in all all of them exactly and I'm always amazed when this modern day technology can discover details about the works that the artist might not even have wanted people to know like we always talk about when they're finding things underneath other Mm -hmm. paintings on the same canvas yeah but this is so cool because they actually were able to go back through all his letters and match his handwriting handwriting. identically like letter to letter I feel like it would have been so cool to be part of this research um, and this is obviously great press for Norway's National Museum, as, an, as I'm sure people will be excited to view the painting with this information in mind once it's on view again. It's already such a famous painting, so I feel like it was going to attract the public anyways, but this just makes it so much more special. I agree. Like, regardless, people are going to go stop and see it, but yeah. now it's, like, really a reason. Yeah, and It's I like a like, treasure hunt. Yeah, and people might even want to get, like, super close to it to see if they can see the inscription and all of that, which I'm sure, like, wouldn't have happened before. Yes. So headline number two comes to us from the art newspaper, where it was reported that, quote, Aga Khan Museum acquires massive Lego sculpture of an ancient African metropolis. So the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto has acquired a sculpture made from 100,000 pieces of Lego by the Ghanaian-Canadian artist Ikao Nimako, who is known for his Afrofuturist reimaginings of Black histories built from Lego bricks. The sculpture is titled Kumbi Sale 3020 common era and it envisions the ancient trading town in Mauritania 1000 years in the future as a vast and complex metropolis once again. At the height of the Ghanan Empire in around 1000 CE, the Kambisela was the center of the trans-Saharan trade route, boosting cultural diffusion between Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. Yeah, so something that caught my attention about this work is that it was actually commissioned as a response to the Aga Khan's museum archaeological show Caravans of Gold, Fragments, and Time, which explored ancient trade routes in the Sahara and their cross-cultural impact. 
And museum directors hope that this sculpture will enhance the museum's ability to tell global stories about the contributions of Muslim civilizations across time. Mm -hmm. They also recently launched a podcast series that explores Muslim arts and culture. And we all know we love a podcast here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but going back to the Legos as a medium, Namako says he turned his childhood hobby of building with Legos into a formal practice as a way to address ancestral trauma that comes up in contemporary black culture. Legos were actually quite a hot topic in the art world this week. Hyperallergic reported that you can now, quote, build Starry Night entirely out of Lego blocks, which is so cool because I feel like when you think of Legos, it was very like construction based. Yeah. So to see it being used for art is just so different and exactly. cool. Exactly. I think it's also so funny they spelled out Lego as in like like the Van Gogh spelling. So yes. it's like L-E-G-O. G-H, yes. which is cute. But yeah, the Van Gogh Lego is a over 1,500 piece set that includes a Van Gogh minifigure that stands before the set, capturing the painting on a little Lego easel on canvas. So the Lego set is not actually star Starry Night, but it reveals the landscape by which like Starry Night was inspired from. So basically, you see Van Gogh painting it on plein air. Yeah, and the duality of Legos in this instance is so interesting. On one hand, an artist is using them as his preferred medium, while on the other hand, Legos are used to represent a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree. But I think the work that Namako is doing is so important because the museum is really focusing right now on like trade routes and like how information was exchanged back then. And just like the fact that he's trying to bring this like ancient city back to life is very cool, while also like reclaiming stories and just making people aware of Muslim culture. Have you ever been to Legoland? Yes, I have. Have. I have too. I used to I go went to I the original. Little. Like in San Diego? <laughs> no, Where's no, the original? In Denmark. Oh. <laughs> I was like, where? <laughs> I went in San Diego. That's cute. So our third headline has been a hot topic of conversation in the art world this week. As reported by Artnet News, quote, is this the next art market bubble? A unique NFT for the popular Nyan Cat Jeff, just sold for a whopping $560,000. So for this story, we need to give some background since what's going on is a little bit confusing, even for us who are following closely. Yes. <laughs> but earlier this month, the Marketplace Foundation launched as a platform to sell NFTs. An NFT is a non-fungible token, which means that they are digital assets that represent a wide range of unique tangible and intangible items from collectible sports cards to virtual real estate and even digital sneakers. So basically it is a scam because you're <laughs> buying something virtual and like most of them are actually not like tangible. But they have become extremely popular in the art world in the past couple of weeks. And a few days ago, the creator of the Neon Cat, which is a pixelated cat dressed as a Pop-Tart, and it flies in a straight line through an equally dated looking Starry Night backdrop with a stream of rainbow colors trailing behind. But yeah, so like... It's like a really like iconic early 2000s or not early 2000s, like I think 2011. Yeah, it first became popular on YouTube yeah. in 2011. Yeah. And the creator, Chris Torres, decided to sell it at auction through Foundation. Okay, yeah. Kind of in honor of the 10th anniversary, I guess. Yeah, I think that's what it was. But yeah, it's a very interesting thing that's going on. On Foundation, artists set a reserve prize, and once it's met, it triggers a 24-hour auction. And if a bid is placed within the final 15 minutes, it extends the auction another 15 minutes. So for the Nyan Cat, 
auction, there were 29 bids placed, and the majority of those happened within the final hour. So the sale kept getting extended. This is such an interesting phenomenon that happens during online auctions, even at Christie's yes. and Sotheby's, where you'll go on a week before and you can view all the lots mm-hmm. and see that the reserve hasn't been met because people wait until the last, last possible minute. second yeah. in an effort to not drive up the, the price. Prices, yes. But this whole NFT situation is really blowing up. Artists are selling versions of their works in this new format, and they are selling for crazy amounts. Mm -hmm. Artnet also reported that a set of virtual furniture sold for $450,000. Yeah, I think this digital market thing is so wild. And as we briefly discussed last week, Christie's is due to have their first ever digital auction, which will only sell um, one work, and it'll be a digital work. And... The artist for that work is also selling an NFT along with the work, which contains a signature and like other things. But it's just like kind of hard to grasp grasp the concept of like these NFT things. It seems so crazy to me. Like I can't imagine spending so much money on a piece of furniture that's intangible. No, exactly. Or just like a painting or things like that. But artists are making so much money right now off of this. But it's like not, I mean, I wouldn't consider it real art. It's going to be a waste of money or it's like the wave of the future and they're going to get in early and be yeah. really excited. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I I don't think it's for me, but. <laughs> <laughs> Headline number four comes to us from Artnet, which shared that quote, what a steal. For less than $250, you can get a set of limited edition artworks by the likes of Jenny Holzer and Martin Creed mailed to your door. So in a nod to a cultish mail art project from the late 1960s, Danish agency creator projects allows collectors of all budgets to purchase 12 works by major artists, including Jenny Holzer and Martin Creed, for just 200 euros, which is equivalent to $243. so cool. But the original mail art initiative was conceived in 1968 and came in the form of a magazine subscription. And over the course of 10 months, six issues were released, resulting in the creation of around 70 works. So this time around, the small artworks in the limited edition portfolio will arrive at your door in the in a container the size of a shoebox, and the entire set is available starting for pre-sale yesterday, February 24th. Very exciting, just in time if you're interested. And Creative Project, this founder, released a statement that read, quote, when the pandemic hit and the world entered into lockdown, these concerns became imperative because many understood how essential it is to experience art. Suddenly, mailing artworks directly to a person's home seemed the most effective way for people to reach art. And the concerns that he's referring to in this statement are how the art that we see in museums and art fairs could be affordable for a broader audience. Because so often people do see these, they read the reviews, but in no world do they have the chance of purchasing. Um, These works are produced in an edition of 1,000, and it is expected to ship in May and will hopefully become an annual project. Right, there are talks that the 2021 is just the first First. edition, basically. That'd be cool. And what I love about this project is that it also allows these collectors to be exposed to artists they might not Not, be familiar with because you might be drawn to get this just because of one specific artist Artist. who's participating, but there's no option to get one work. You get all 12. (laughs) It's very cool. It's also a great way to start an art collection and just like make it more accessible because the works are presented as a portfolio of sorts. Right. So you're basically getting a set instead of just spending $200 on On one. one. Yeah. It's such a deal. Such a deal. I think we might need to (laughs) go sign up. (laughs) 
Our fifth and final story is also from Artnet, where it was revealed that, quote, in an astounding discovery, archaeologists in Alaska have unearthed a handful of Venetian glass beads they believe to be over 540 years old, making them the earliest European objects discovered on the continent. This is crazy because, to put it into perspective, it would mean that the marble-sized spheres made it to North America decades before Christopher Columbus did. And researchers have explained that the beads most likely were transported along the Silk Road, as Italian craftspeople often traded with people throughout Asia. Mm -hmm. The beads would have then most likely made their way through China and Russia before arriving in Alaska. And this is actually a trend, as since 2004, the researchers have uncovered beads across three different archaeological sites in Alaska. The beads would have traveled over 10,000 miles to get there, which considering they look like blueberries, it's really crazy to think about. They're so small. They're so small and they are blue. So they really do look like little blueberries. Yes. You think they would have been lost, but no. no. Exactly. And Venetian glass production is actually centered on the Venetian island of Murano, which you can still go visit today. I've actually been and it's so (laughs) cool. It was so cool. I love seeing how traditional like the craftsmanship behind even the items like the small beads still are. And you can buy all sorts of things. They make chandeliers like it's so beautiful. I loved it. Did you go to like a workshop? Yeah. yeah, And it was so hot inside. And it was the middle of summer. (laughs) I feel like now they probably make more money off of like having the workshop open to tourists. Oh, for sure. From like the actual glass, but it is an incredible craft. I loved it. It's like going to a theme park. Like they walk you through and then you end up in the gift shop. (laughs) It is. (laughs) So true. I forgot about that. (laughs) But finally, before we go, we have some emerging news to share with you. Coming to us from Art Forum, the headline reads, quote, Marfa, Texas to welcome new cultural center. Michael Fallon, founder of the two-year-old insider arts fair Marfa Invitational, is planning to open an arts foundation by that name in Marfa, Texas this fall. Yes, and the Marfa Invitational will be open year-round, which is exciting, and will host a variety of events across disciplines, including art installations, performances, film, video screenings, fashion shows, and other talks. The exhibition space will consist of twin pre-engineered steel structures with glass doors that can be rolled all the way up to provide an open air experience, which I feel like is very on brand with everything we see in Marfa. Yes. And the structure is currently being fabricated in El Paso and the halls will later be assembled in Marfa and will together encompass 15,000 square feet, which is massive. It is massive. So visitors to this year's Invitational, which is still scheduled for April, will be able to tour the still under construction site. I'm really surprised that it's still due to happen. Me too. Considering everything that's going on in Texas right now and also the fact that we reported on how Marfa didn't want visitors only a few months ago they were like please stay away I wonder if there will be kind of like a rebellion from residents in Marfa because why would they want all these people coming right now it's really only a month to two months away yeah no exactly it's depending on when in April it is yeah But like Ann and I always say, we're dying to go to Marfa. (laughs) So this is just another place to visit once we get there. Yes, we're very excited. And I just think it'll be very cool. Sounds like it'll be. Um, But I think this is it for today. Unless you have something else you want to share. I think that's it. (laughs) Okay, see you Monday. Bye. Bye.